You're listening to show seven of the Real Estate CPA Podcast. You're listening to the Real Estate CPA Podcast, our platform for educating real estate investors about business, accounting, and taxes. You'll get actionable advice that you can use to increase profits for your real estate venture. And now your host, an entrepreneur who happens to be good at taxes, Brandon Hall. Welcome to the relaunch of the Real Estate CPA Podcast, and thanks for tuning in. You know, it's been an interesting year. I think the last podcast I released was in the middle of 2016. I feel the reason that I haven't been on top of the podcasting is because my goals were a little bit too aggressive. Basically, I wanted to release one podcast per week because I thought that that's what you had to do to build out a solid content platform in the podcasting world. Only later did I find that I was kind of in over my head. So I talked to a few industry experts and they were like, look, all you have to do is just be consistent. If it's going to be a monthly podcast, do a monthly podcast. If it's going to be a quarterly podcast, do it per quarter. But the key is to be consistent. And that really resonated with me because I do believe that the key to really finding any sort of success is consistency. And you know, I do want to say thank you very much to the clients that reached out and to the non-clients that reached out and gave me some really awesome feedback, both on iTunes as ratings, but then also just personal emails that said, hey, your podcast is awesome. What happened to it? Those were the types of feedbacks that really motivated me to get back on the content train. So I have some exciting news. I have hired a marketing firm to solidify a content strategy. So they have actually developed out a content plan for me. And I just want to give you a really quick overview of what that looks like. We are committing to one podcast per month. We're going to do a few articles per month. So three. Uh, I'm hoping for more, but definitely three. And then we're going to jump back on that monthly newsletter. I know we dropped that off as well, especially once tax season started and I just got bogged down with everything. How am I going to accomplish this? Well, one, we actually have structure. Again, this marketing firm creating this platform for us. Um, two, I'm bringing on a couple new professionals. So I'm hiring a couple CPAs that are going to be added to my team. I've got a full-time accountant, Kevin. He's awesome. And I have a full-time business development manager, Mary. She's awesome. All of these people are going to start soaking up some of the minutiae tasks that I have to do every day which is going to allow me to get back on the content train and deliver awesome value to you. We decided to keep the format the same, so we're still going to stick to about 15 to 20 minute podcasts. You know, tax and accounting topics can get really boring really fast, even when you have an awesome host like me who adds a lot of energy and, and, and enthusiasm. Uh, so, so expect the 15 to 20 minute podcast to stay. I don't think that I'm going to be including any other hosts and I don't think that I'm going to necessarily be doing any other interviews like interviewing other professionals in the industry. Instead, I might actually bring them in on a webinar or something, but that could all change later on down the line. So because we just finished up tax season, I figured that the relaunch should focus on tax mistakes that investors of all levels make. So if you're a new investor, or if you've been in the industry for decades, this podcast will have a few gold nuggets for you to take away. And I did just release an article on our website about the top 10 mistakes that investors make. So we're going to be zeroing in on three of those today. The three mistakes that we're going to dive into today are deducting monthly escrow payments, using 529 plans, and not using a 1031 exchange, 
or not even knowing how to go about the analysis of whether or not you should use a 1031 exchange. Okay, so let's talk about deducting monthly escrow payments. First off, I guess we should preface this by explaining what monthly escrow is in case you don't know or in case you're unaware. When you obtain a loan from the bank or even private loans sometimes, you will have to pay a monthly rate in most cases to the lender. And this monthly payment is going to include principal and interest, probably at a minimum, but you might also have escrow payments and the escrow payments are going to be insurance and property taxes. So you could have a mortgage of say $3,000 a month where $700 a month is principal, uh, $1,300 is interest, and then the remaining $1,000 is split between insurance and property taxes. But what I want to make very clear today is that the escrow portion of that payment is not deductible. And what I mean by it's not deductible, I mean that it's not deductible when you actually make the monthly payment. Because think about it like this. Escrow funds are technically your funds. Think of escrow as a bank account that you just don't have access to, but it's under your name. So the funds in that bank account are your funds. In no way, shape, or form, when you move money from your checking account to your savings account, let's just talk, th think about this on a personal level. You move money from your personal checking account to your personal savings account, you don't get to write that off on your taxes. The same thing works with escrow. So these monthly payments are technically just moving money from pocket A to pocket B. You're moving money from your bank account to your other bank account that you don't really have access to, and that bank account is called escrow. So when you actually make these monthly payments, they're not deductible the month that you make them. Instead, they're only deductible when the bank releases the payments to the appropriate vendor, whether it be the insurance company or the actual county, city, local property tax vendor. Um, that's when your escrow payments are actually officially going to be deductible. And you'll see these disbursements on Forms 1098 that the lender will issue you at year end for your tax reporting purposes. But sometimes the disbursements are not actually listed on the Form 1098. And so it's a really important topic that I want you to understand that your monthly payments are not actually deductible. The insurance and property tax payments are only deductible when they are actually released and paid from via your escrow account. A really common example of a mishap here is when you buy a property in the first year, you typically will pay for the insurance premium upfront for 12 months. And that's going to come out at closing. And what I see investors do is they'll have this say $500 insurance premium at closing. And then they also include in their profit and loss statement, the monthly insurance payment into escrow after that. So the first year insurance cost, according to their PL, is like 1200 bucks when it really is only $500 because that was what was actually paid the remaining amount is going into escrow. And the same can be said for property taxes. Depending on where you live depends on the property tax payment schedule, but it's definitely not on a monthly basis. And it's very important to understand so that your profit and loss statements can be correct because technically, if you wanted to book this correctly on your own books, you would need to include that escrow payment as an escrow account. And it would be a balance sheet account, a current asset, but it would not be an expense. It would only be an expense when escrow releases the funds for payment. So that was the first big mistake, deducting monthly escrow payments. 
The second big mistake is when real estate investors or business owners use 529 plans. I can't tell you how much I hate 529 plans. Sure, yeah, you can make an argument, you can make all these excuses about when they're applicable and, and why you should use them and everything. Bottom line is if you're investing in real estate or you run a business, you should absolutely not use a 529 plan. There are better options available to you that are not available to standard W-2 holders. So when I ask new clients why they are using a 529 plan or where did they hear about a 529 plan, it's usually one of two or three things. Uh, I Googled how to save for college and 529 plans popped up. Uh, I was at a dinner function and one of my friends or neighbors told me about it or mom and dad had a 529 plan for me and they told me I should do a 529 plan. So I started it and I started contributing all decently okay ways to figure out what's out there. Not a good idea to actually use if you're a real estate investor or if you're running a business. Think about it like this. If somebody is not in a position similar to you, like like people at these dinner functions, maybe mom and dad, maybe they all had W-2 jobs their entire lives, they're not in a similar position to you because they don't own real estate. They don't run a business. When you invest in real estate, you put yourself in a completely different set of shoes than the standard W-2 job holder. And you need to understand that. So advice that you hear on the street, advice that you get when you Google something is not going to be applicable in most cases. So why do I hate 529 plans so much? Well, first off, and the biggest one is that they're only deductible, the contributions are only deductible at the state level. So you don't get any sort of federal tax deduction for contributing to a 529 plan. The second biggie is that if your kid ends up being a genius and gets a full ride to whatever college they are going to, all of a sudden you are stuck trying to figure out how to liquidate these funds in this 529 plan without paying high penalties, which will happen if you don't spend that money on qualified education expenses. So the way that I look at it is why do we want to lock money up in something where we're not getting a federal tax break, which is really the biggest one because that's where the biggest portion of our overall tax liability comes from. Why would we want to lock funds up into something that's relatively illiquid? I mean, it's, it's liquid. I could pull money out, but I'm really not going to be able to do that without paying penalties on it. And sure, there are strategies that we can go through, but why even bother with that? Why even set yourself up for that type of conversation? Just avoid it altogether. So here's what we do instead. Since you are investing in real estate or running a business, you have other options available to you. The biggest is that you can pay your children for working in your business or on your rental real estate. Now, it has to be legitimate work. We can't be fudging the rules or anything like that. We do need job descriptions. So like when, when our clients hire their kids, we help build out job descriptions that are legitimate, that match industry standards, and something that we could actually assign a value to. So the work has to be legitimate. There needs to be a job description in place. And then the third one is really like, if you didn't hire your child, you would either have to personally do the task and it's no longer worth your time, or you would have to hire somebody else to do that task for you and you would pay them. So those are kind of the, the high level rules on hiring your child. But when we hire our child, we can pay them for their participation in our business, just like we would pay any employee. So we get them on payroll, we issue them a W-2, but the cool thing about this is that the funds that you pay them, you get to deduct from your business or from your rental real estate on a federal level and a state level. So you get the federal tax deduction 
and you get the state tax deduction. Just like if you were to pay a third-party contractor or for third-party labor or a third-party employee, you get to deduct those expenses on a federal and state tax level. That federal deduction that we get when we pay our child automatically makes us better than the 529 plan. But let's keep going. So we pay our child. Uh, if they receive less than $6,300 in compensation, then they don't have to file a tax return. Why? Because the standard deduction, at least currently, who knows what Trump's going to do, but the, the current standard deduction is $6,300 per person. So if you pay your child less than $6,300, that child does not have to file a tax return. So think about this now. We've paid our child $6,300 or less. We get a federal and a state tax deduction. The child does not have to report the income. So the income is quite literally tax-free. And it's all legal if you set it up the right way. So now your child has $6,300 sitting in their checking account. You're the fiduciary of this account, by the way, until they turn 18. You will then go set up a Roth IRA for your child. You'll then take $5,500, at least that's today's maximum contribution. You'll take $5,500 of that $6,300 that's sitting in the child's bank account, and you will contribute it to their Roth IRA, which you are now also the fiduciary of until they turn 18 or 21, depending on how you set it up. So now your child has $5,500 sitting in their Roth IRA. Why is this beneficial and why a Roth IRA? Well, a Roth IRA is great for sheltering money on an after-tax basis, but the income that the child received, they don't pay any tax on it and it's after-tax. So it's like, it's this weird kind of mix of even though it's after-tax, they haven't actually paid any tax on it because they get it tax-free. So that's a perfect example of money that we want to put into a Roth IRA because that money will always be tax-free per the Roth IRA rules. But the really attractive thing about this strategy is that the Roth IRA has this neat little rule that says you can withdraw your contributions to the Roth IRA tax-free and penalty-free as long as your first withdrawal is five years after your initial contribution. So think about this. You have a 10-year-old child, they're working in your business or your real estate rentals. You're paying them every single year. When they turn 18, they could have a pretty sizable Roth IRA built up. And because you can withdraw the contributions from a Roth IRA tax-free and penalty-free, all of a sudden we've got a really solid college savings plan in place. All of that money's been delivered to the Roth IRA tax-free. You've been getting a federal and a state tax write-off for all of these years for all the work that the child's been doing. And the child can take it out to pay for whatever education expenses they need to because they can withdraw those contributions tax-free and penalty-free. And then even on top of that, we probably have earnings from the principal balance of the Roth IRA. So even if the child withdraws all of the contributions, they'll still have some amount in the Roth IRA, and that'll be the, the increase in principal, the, the capital gain basis of the Roth IRA. And then they can go use that to buy a house or start them off in life or whatever they need to do. So when you think about it like this, the paying your child and then moving it to a Roth IRA strategy is infinitely better than the 529 plan. All right, so we've talked about deducting monthly escrow payments, why that's not possible. We've talked about why you should not use a 529 plan. And I've given you a tool that is better than a 529 plan, mainly that Roth IRA. There are a couple other strategies there, but just for today's purposes, 
just the Roth IRA, uh, but why that's a superior option to or over contributing to a 529 plan. Lastly, we're going to talk about 1031 exchanges and why I think it's a mistake for people to not utilize a 1031 exchange. And we're going to kind of talk through on a high level, I know it's a podcast, but just on a high level, how you can actually go about analyzing your property um, and whether or not it makes sense to do a 1031 exchange. So for those that don't know, a 1031 exchange allows you to roll over the capital gain that you would have otherwise had to recognize and pay income taxes on when you sell a property. So if I'm gonna, if I have a property, for instance, that has a one thousand uh, dollar capital gain built into it, and I want to sell that property for whatever reason, I can sell the property and then pay tax on that one hundred thousand dollars of capital gain, or I could do a 1031 exchange where I basically sell the property and then concurrently buy another property of an equal or greater value and I can roll my $100,000 capital gain into the next property. So I don't have to pay tax, but I do have to still be invested in real estate. Imagine if you do something like that 10 times, all of a sudden you've got a million dollars that you've never paid taxes on that you just continuously roll into the next property. So that's why 1031s are rather powerful because you can avoid the tax, you, you can avoid paying tax currently and it basically allows you to grow your principal balance tax-free over time. Sometimes some of my clients and investors that I know will sell property without either knowing that a 1031 is a possibility or um, they'll look at a 1031 and say, nope, not for me, I'm just gonna go ahead and sell it. And then when they see their tax bill, they're like, crap, I should have sold uh, my property in via a 1031 exchange. I should have used a 1031 exchange rather than just selling it outright. When you're considering a 1031 exchange, I recommend that you think about what the value of your time is worth. 1031 exchanges are complicated. They do take time to go through and to work through and to make sure that it's facilitated correctly. And we want to include that time that it takes in our overall analysis, right? So if we're gonna save $1,000 by doing a 1031 exchange, it's probably not worth our time to actually pursue the, the 1031 exchange. We'll just pay the $1,000 and call it a day. These are the things that we go through with our clients that are looking at a 1031 exchange. Uh, you know, we, we, we make them aware of the process, we tell them how complicated it's gonna be, how much time it's gonna take, and then if the savings, the projected savings, justify the time, justify the headache, that's when we pursue the 1031. There's no magic number to what that savings number should be in order to pursue a 1031. You know, I have clients that will pursue it for $1,500 net tax savings after they pay the intermediary, after they pay our fees. I have clients that won't do it unless they save $10,000 net of expenses. But the magic number kind of seems to be around $5,000. Again, there's no scientific reason for it, but that's just what I've recognized over time as we've provided 1031 exchange services to our clients. So a net savings of $5,000 uh, really means that the total tax savings is probably around $6,500 because you, you're probably going to pay around $1,500 to your various professionals to go through a 1031 exchange. So if our total savings is $6,500, um, net savings is $5,000, what that translates to, if your capital gains are taxed at 15%, it translates to a $43,300 capital gain. So it's really not a lot. If you're in the highest tax bracket, the highest marginal tax bracket, your capital gains are taxed at 23.8%. 
and that capital gain looks like $27,300. So again, we're not talking about massive gains here. So you can you can see already that even on low level gains, it could make a lot of sense to go ahead and do a 1031 exchange. The other thing to look at too is your depreciation recapture. So if you've been renting out a property for a long time, you've been depreciating it over all of these years. You have to pay tax on the depreciation that you've taken up to a 25% rate. When you do a 1031 exchange, you can roll over that depreciation recapture so you can defer that payment. And sometimes that alone is substantial enough to justify a 1031 exchange. And that's before we even factor in the capital gain. Because this is a podcast, we're not going to dive into how to analyze whether or not you should do a 1031 exchange to the exact dollar value. It's going to be extremely complicated. Basically, we would be looking at basis information to understand what the basis is, what your tax liability is going to be, both in terms of depreciation, recapture, and capital gain. And then if you were to roll it over into the next property, what that property needs to look like in terms of market value, and then what what that, what that future property's basis is going to be after you complete the, the 1031 and then your, your future uh, depreciation and amortization schedules would be built out. That's what goes into a real analysis. But what I want to emphasize to you is that if you have a capital gain in the high $20,000 range, $30,000 range, you should look at a 1031 exchange because it's most likely going to save you that net $5,000 ballpark figure. And the other thing that I want to emphasize is to just double check your tax returns if you're a high income earner or if you're if you're above that $150,000 threshold where you are no longer able to deduct your passive losses, you probably have suspended passive losses that can be liquidated or activated um, whenever you sell a property outright. So if we're looking at a $30,000 gain on a property, somebody who doesn't know to go and check the tax returns for the suspended passive losses might say, the 1031 exchange is your only option to avoid taxes. But what we would do is we would look at your tax returns. We would find what your suspended passive losses are. And oftentimes what we find is that on these lower level gains, they can pretty much be wiped out by the passive losses that have been carried forward. We actually had an investor who did not become a client. We were, we were setting everything up for him. We were reviewing his information and we were going to provide him with 1031 analysis type services. And when we reviewed his tax returns, we realized that he had a six-figure suspended passive loss. And that six-figure suspended passive loss would completely offset the capital gain and the depreciation recapture when he liquidated his property. And that took us about five minutes to find out once we had the tax returns uploaded to our portal and everything. But that's my point, is that a simple five-minute look at your tax return could save you thousands of dollars in 1031 exchange fees and the big benefit is that you're able to sell your property, liquidate the cash, and now you have it all in your pocket. You don't have to worry about navigating the 1031 rule, staying out of trouble, and reapplying all capital into the next building. If you enjoyed today's show, please visit therealestatecpa.com for our newsletter, tips, articles, and podcast show notes. Thanks for listening to the Real Estate CPA Podcast. We'll see you next time.